Once again, good morning, whether you are here in person or visiting online or not able to be here, we're glad that you are with us this morning. Uh, We're going to be looking at John chapter 11 again this morning as you're turning there, if you have a Bible or on your phone or however you access the Bible. Um, I want to start with a little story, a question about um, something that's probably familiar to all of us. Have you ever had a sensitive tooth? I'm not talking about just a sensitive tooth when you eat ice cream or something cold or very hot, but when you go to the dentist and they start digging around, you know, they go one tooth at a time, and then the next thing you know, you realize you didn't know that you had a sensitive tooth, but all of a sudden you have a sensitive tooth, and every time he or she gets there, you just go, oh, just move on to the next tooth. I see some of you squirming, so you know what I'm talking about. But but you want them to stay away from that tooth. Uh, The subject we are looking at for the next several weeks, and we looked at last week, is a sensitive subject. It's one that we don't talk about over lunch. We really don't talk about it until it kind of hits us in the face. But the Bible talks about it all the time. And it is the subject of death. We would rather stay away from it. And yet, Jesus keeps coming back to it. If you're like me, you agree with Woody Allen who said, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. David Zoll has a new book out called Low Anthropology, and he writes this, We shut our mortality out of our everyday experience into the specialized corridors of elder care and hospice funeral homes and law firms, hospitals. We shelter our children from its ubiquity, discouraging them from attending memorial services whenever possible. You may or may not have heard of a newer app called We Croak. Basically, if you get this app five times a day, it reminds you, it says this, don't forget you're going to die. The intent of that app is actually to remember that you're going to die, so live in light of that. Live now, right? Seize the day. What the Bible teaches us is a little different. The Bible does say live now, because in Christ, you may live forever. You will live forever if you are in Christ. You are going to die, but you don't have to fear it. You don't have to push it away and ignore it. And you don't have to accept the cultural or religious traditions that often surround it. Jesus says, if you believe in me, even though you die, you will live. Everything sad will come in true will come true. Are you living in light of that today? That's why we are spending six weeks in a chapter and about a quarter. Lazarus, now Martha. Look at verse 17 in John chapter 11. Hear God's beautiful word. When Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem 
about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Let's again pray. God, we do again pray, giving you thanks for your word. We need something that has authority over opinions, perceived truth, relative truth, if there is such a thing. And and even more importantly, just what very often pops up in our heads. And we pray that your truth would be set free today and would run like crazy in this sanctuary, in the minds and the hearts the imaginations and the wills of your people giving life just like Ezekiel forecast. Bring life to our bones, O Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. One of the hardest parts of being a pastor or an elder in the Lord's church or simply being a parent or even a spouse, or anyone in any position of authority. Maybe you have people under you at work, or you coach a team, or you're a teacher, or you're a decision maker of some sort. When you make a decision, and the response to that decision can be sometimes resentment. Again, if you have parents or you have kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But disappointment with your decisions, whether you made a great decision or not a great decision, when someone resents the decision that you made, resentment is hard to receive, isn't it? Do you ever experience resentment with God's decisions? How something turns out because God did not intervene. Last week we saw confusion with the ways and the delays of God. Next week we will see sadness and grief with God's ways. Today what we see in the picture of Martha is resentment and disappointment 
with Jesus' decision to delay. And so the question I want us to ask this text is this. What is it that Jesus does with our resentment? First thing I think we see in this text is this. Jesus meets us in our resentment. Jesus meets us with our resentment that we have. Verses 17 through 21. Look at this text. First thing that we see here about Martha is that she actually has what you might call good human reasons for her resentment and disappointment with Jesus. Look at the text because John is clear about this. Now when Jesus came, remember he had delayed. He said we're going to stay a couple extra days. He found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now tradition had it in Jesus' time and there's debate about whether this is what's going on here but I think it is valuable Tradition has it that the soul would leave the body on the third day. And so that maybe one of the things Jesus was doing was he was showing them that by my delay and by my not coming, I want to show you that there's nothing hokey going on here. This is not a a resuscitation or maybe Lazarus was asleep. I'm going to engage your traditional mindset and show you something that Lazarus is deader than dead. John leaves no doubt as to Lazarus's condition. Four days. And Jesus was so close, yet so far away. Look at verse 18. What does it say? Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. It was actually 1.7 miles away. As one person quoted, the friend who came too late, but now comes. You ever had a friend like that? You needed them, and they don't come, and then they come way too late, and you're like, y'all would never do that. You're holier than me. But this is exactly how Martha saw it. Lazarus' condition is he's deader than dead. Martha's condition is resentment. If you don't believe me, look at verses 20 and 23. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, if you had blank, this wouldn't have happened. And many of you could fill in the blank with several things. If I would have had a different parent. If this job would have come through. If you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Do you hear her resentment? Her disappointment? Uh, Some commentators would go as far to say that it's even accusation. That she's accusing Jesus for being gone so long and only being about a mile and a half away. That she's even rebuking God. Think about verse 19 for a minute. You have all of these religious folk 
that were not Christians. These people didn't believe in Jesus. And they all showed up, didn't they? Where were you and your disciples? And yet John is showing us something else. Not only does she harbor resentment toward God, her resentment is mingled with faith. Look at verse 22. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus, when you're going to wake up? But I know if you wake up, Jesus, if you'd have just been here, but I know even now, whatever you ask God. John wants us to see this juxtaposition of resentment and hope. Faith and disappointment. What you might even say is frustration and supplication. Because what does she do with her resentment? She gets up and she runs to meet Jesus. Do you see it? John wants us to see that she just doesn't harbor her resentment and sit in her resentment. And get this, she doesn't deconstruct her faith because of this. This is real suffering that Jesus could have solved. And she doesn't say, well, I'm out of here. I'm done with this whole Christian thing. She takes her resentment and her faith to Jesus. Because Jesus meets us in our resentment. I was reworking on this sermon yesterday and I was trying to think, what's a good illustration of this, of Jesus meeting in us, us and our resentment? My daughter came running through and I said, sweetheart, can you give me a good illustration? She said, let me think about it while I get a shower. And then I thought, wait a minute, it's in verse 32. Because it's not just Martha that harbors resentment and faith, it's her sister, Mary. Mary says the exact same words as Martha. Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. You see what John wants us to see? See, we think we got to clean up our act to go to Jesus. We have to be people of faith to go to Jesus. We have to deal with our resentment first and then go to Jesus. And John says, no. Bring your resentment mingled with faith and bring it to Jesus. When you pray, do your prayers ever sound like this? Do you avoid prayer because you're afraid of what God would really think about what you're thinking? Do you know that God already knows what you're thinking? And he meets you. He's not ashamed of your resentment. Do friends, be it Christian or non-Christian, feel the freedom to bring their resentment to you and you won't immediately tell them what to do? Notice Jesus has not even said a word yet. He just received her. Isn't that beautiful? See, I'd be saying, you got to get that resentment. You know, you read this book that'll help you with resentment. Go talk to your elders. Jesus just receives her. If you're not a Christian today, 
you probably have a lot of questions for God. But maybe you should think about your questions this way. What's behind those questions? You want God to solve all your problems and all your questions and really all your resentments. Bring those resentments and mingle them with faith and Jesus will meet you. As Brian prayed earlier, he may not give you all the answers you want or how you want them answered, but he will meet you with your faith mingled with resentment. So that's the first thing that we see that Jesus does with our resentment. Secondly, he blows our imaginations. He blows our imaginations. He expands our imaginations by giving us a person and a promise. Look at verses 23 through 25. Have you ever seen those shows, sort of like Undercover Boss, where you know, you're, you're working at the fast food place and you're cleaning and the, the janitor comes in and you're kind of like, oh, I'm actually lowest person on the totem pole here, but I'm above the janitor. But the janitor's actually like a Fortune 500 CEO, but they're undercover just to kind of watch how things work. I think about that with Jesus often all through the Gospel of John. He's got to be scratching his head because people are scratching their heads about him all the time. And he's, he's, he's disclosing who he is. He's trying to say, this is who I really am. And that's what he's doing with Martha. He blows her imagination concerning who she thinks he is and who he really is. Look at verse 22. Look at her limited understanding of Jesus. I'm not faulting her for this at all. Okay? Some people call this weak faith. I'm not even calling this weak faith. She just has a limited understanding. And she says this to Jesus. Hey, with her faith, she says, I know, even now, that if you ask God, He'll do it. I know that you have some sort of position with God, some in with God, some access to God that I don't have. It's like people say that to me all the time when they find out I'm a pastor. Well, would you pray for me? Because I know you got an in with God. I'm like, no, 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 no. You don't understand the gospel. Anybody in the kingdom of heaven has the exact same standing and access that I do. And it's the exact same standing and access that Jesus has with God. Did you know that? That you have that too. But we'll talk about that later. But she says, I want you to use that access with God. Because I know you're special. And then 23 and 24, we'll get to those in a minute. But look at what he says in 25 as he begins to open her eyes more to who he is. Martha, let me just cut to the chase here. I am the resurrection and the life. And again, if you've been around the Bible at all, even if you haven't, you probably know the story about Moses in the burning bush and God reveals himself, says, I am who I am. He's like, no, no, no better way to say it. It's the best tweet in the Old Testament, so to speak. Not even funny, I know, that's okay. He's like, I am, I'm it, I'm God. And Jesus uses that saying over and over, I am the bread of life. Are you really, really hungry? I am the bread of life. Can you not see? Do you live in darkness? Are you confused about how to raise your kids? I am the light of the world. You don't know, you don't know which door is it? He says, I am the gate. You need lead sometimes? I am the good shepherd. You need life? You need truth? I am the way, the truth, and the life. You're not growing? I am the true vine. 
But notice what he says. I am. I am God. This means two things at least. It means we need to let go of our cultural views of Jesus. What do I mean by that? Jesus in his humanity is a man. Has limitations. He is a great teacher. He is a religious leader. He is a miracle worker. He is a prophet. And he is God. Jesus is God. He is the ultimate influencer. He's got millions and millions of followers. And if you're not listening to him, if you're not listening to him, then you're not listening to God. You're listening to people that pretend to be God and pretend to be influencers and authorities. Jesus is God. But secondly, now hear me before you kick me out of Presbytery, elders, let go of your biblical views apart from Jesus. We've got to let go of our biblical views of God apart from Jesus. We've said this before. See, we've got to quit thinking of God as just some Old Testament God. We can't think about the law without thinking about God coming to fulfill it in our place because he knew it breaks us. We can't think about the temple and all those things without thinking about the Lamb of God. You can't think about wrath without thinking about Jesus. See, we cannot think of God without thinking of Jesus because God is Jesus. This man we're reading about and seeing in the Gospels, he is God. God is Jesus. He is actually this man. Does your view of God look like the person of Jesus, a God-man who tenderly dialogues with confused disciples and resentful women? Is that your God? A God who has friends like this and loves those friends. I was talking to a friend this weekend. We had our Presbyterian meeting in Cincinnati, and he was telling me about this book he was reading on worship. And, and he said that the author says, and again, I know the, no qualifiers here. The Trinity is having a conversation about how they're going to save the world. And one of them says, somebody's got to go in. Somebody's got to go in to fix this. And it's not just like an, a military thing where you just show up and you do your thing and you get out of there. In fact, one of us is going to have to go through a birth canal and come out of a womb of a virgin and be breastfed and grow up to be a man and, be suff and take rejection and scorn and rebuke and get abused and take our accusations and take all that resentment upon himself. One of us is going to have to be a mediator between God and mankind. And you know what Timothy says about him? Listen to how Timothy says it. There is one God and one mediator between God and mankind. This gets at the question of what is Jesus doing right now? He's mediating for you between God and you. 
But then he goes on to say this. How is he doing it? There is only one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. Does that put chills down your spine? The man. Not God didn't go back to being like spirit. Jesus in heaven right now is a person. He's one of us, mediating for us. That should blow your imagination, but secondly is the promise here. Look at what he promises to do in verse 23. This is unbelievable. Try saying this at a funeral. Your brother will rise again. You will see your brother again. This death does not end in death. Here in a few moments, everything sad is coming untrue. Here in a few minutes, this guy who kicked the bucket is going to be eating dinner with you. Can you believe that? Look at verse 24. Martha responds theologically. Notice this is a woman who's responding theologically and dialoguing with Jesus. Pretty interesting and beautiful, isn't it? And she believed the normal conservative traditional teaching of the day. That yes, at the end there's going to be some general resurrection, some vague idea of resurrection, but they didn't know what it meant. They didn't think about it bodily. They just thought something really, really good and special is going to happen, which is fine. They didn't have a lot like we do. But that really gets at the point. Do we just cling to vague traditional beliefs and understanding about what's going to happen in our future? Because if we do, you will be afraid of it. But if you actually look at what the scriptures say, it will blow your imagination. Listen to what Jesus says in John 5. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Imagine, you probably haven't thought about where you're going to be buried, but you should. You should tell someone. But imagine all of those graveyards. Everyone is going to rise out of those graves. And those who aren't in Christ are going to go away from him eternally for rejecting him. But those who are in Christ will hear his voice and they're going to spring, they're going to leap like deer and jump for joy. Paul says, no eye has heard, no ear can hear what God has in store for his people. It's that glorious. And what do we do? You've heard the phrase that someone is so heavenly minded they're no earthly good. We're often so earthly minded we're no heavenly good because we just get locked into this world and this life and this little situation. It's what John says to be honest. Let's be honest about this. That we love the world and the things of this world. They're pretty good right now for us. And the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes. He says this, this world is passing away. Be a little more heavenly minded. Jesus blows our imagination. I was speaking with a friend recently and he was saying that they didn't know what to get his dad for his birthday. His dad was turning 83. And he was a car guy. And so they decided to all go in and pitch in and take him to this track south of Indianapolis where for like 
an hour, you could rent a Lamborghini. I told him to text me other ones, but he never did. All these special supercars, right? And I could tell you all about his dad and the videos he showed us. It was glorious, okay? But my buddy Joe got to do it as well. He said it was unbelievable. You can see the video. Every time he's like, the guy sitting with him goes, now gun it on the straightaway. He goes, and he takes off. And you can see Joe's face under the little goggles just brighten. And they get to the end, and Joe's hands are kind of shaking. He's like, that was awesome. And Joe's not a super emotional guy. And the guy goes, what do you normally drive? He goes, oh, like a 98 Suburban. And I thought, you know what? That's a lot like us. Jesus gives us these promises and this beautiful future that blows our minds with new bodies, and we're fixated on these bodies and old Suburbans. Listen to what Paul says about your future. Especially when you're going through things where you want to resent God. I consider, he thinks about it, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation is waiting with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. This adoption where we get new bodies and we go to this new earth. It's glorious. Let's be a little more heavenly minded. Finally, Jesus meets us in our resentment. He blows our imaginations. And thirdly, he invites us to believe into that. Look at verses 25 and 26. Jesus invites us to believe things about him. Yes, facts about him and facts about our future and new bodies and resurrection and a new earth and all of those things. He wants us to believe those facts. And the three verses are not synonymous. Kids, remember synonyms? In other words, these two verses, they go together, but they do not say the same thing. They say two different things. And what they say is that your future is very bright and you should live in light of that in the present. Look at verse 25. He says it like this about your future, about then. He says, I am the resurrection. That future thing that you think this general thing, again, I am that whole shebang. It's in me. It's through me. That future day, that life beyond death, I am it. And if you believe in me, even though you will die, you will live. Jesus is putting the afterlife and eternity back into our vocabulary. But he also says that fuels your life now. Look at verse 25 again. He says, I am the resurrection. Again, this is not synonymous, but it is joined together. I am the resurrection and I am the life, the present life, life right now. Verse 26, everyone who lives and believes in me about that whole resurrection and that future thing, you shall never die. You're going to live now. You know what that means? You may think you're having a terrible day and you bring a lot of resentment to God mingled with faith. Maybe what Jesus is actually doing is the same thing he's doing with the disciples and Martha and Mary. He's growing your faith. 
Again, he's pulling your fingers off of this world and the things we cling to and putting them on him. John 5, 24 says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He or she does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. If you believe in Christ, you will not be judged like someone that does not believe in Christ. You have passed from death to life. The verdict for you in the future is 100% favorable. Your house is in order. Your affairs are in order. When you're audited, you're perfectly clean, blameless. 1 John 4 says you can actually have confidence on the day of judgment that fuels confidence now. Why? Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Do you realize that this death and resurrection of Lazarus will actually lead to Jesus' death and resurrection? It's the one miracle they look at and they go, "Uh uh-uh, we can't have that. Let's take him out. And when he is taken out on the cross, he is judged by his Father. He is mediating for us. Really what is behind our resentment? I've thought and thought about this. What is really behind our resentment is accusation. We want to get to the bottom of it. If I get sick, do you know what I want to figure out? How did I get sick? Who, who, who made me sick? Well, who made that person sick? We just got to go all the way back. You know where you end up? Adam. You're just going to end up at Adam every time. And that's great. Theologically, it is helpful. You need that story. Where did sin and death come from? Okay, let's blame Adam and Eve. Let's accuse them. And yet, we got our own share of the blame, don't we? But go forward. Jesus came into this world. He said, I'll do it. I'm going in and I'm staying. And it's going to put me on a cross. Assign the blame to me. Guilty. And he takes all your sin and your record and it's nailed to the cross. That's why you can have confidence now. Yes, your sin will beat you up. Your guilt, your struggles with your kids or your spouse at work, you fly off the handle, you say crazy things, you have crazy thoughts. In God's eyes, you are as blameless and righteous as Jesus. You have that confidence. Real quickly and finally as we land the plane here. How do you receive that confidence? Verse 26 Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? In the Greek, there is a word. I had to get some help on this one. My Greek's not great. It's the idea of believing into. Again, it's not the noun belief. It's it's a word that suggests movement, transition. It's called a transitive verb. Movement into someone. Let me illustrate this. A child knows that her mom, his, mom, his or her mom loves them and is there for them, right? They may believe that about their parent. But when they wake up in the middle of the night and they have a nightmare, believing that that's true and believing into that are two very different things, aren't they? What Jesus is saying is 
move into me. Move into me like that child crying and running to his or her mom and running into her arms and knowing and believing into those arms and being wrapped in those arms. That is far more than intellectual assent. And when you believe into Christ, you are safe. Even with all your resentments. St. Augustine said it like this. Simple belief into Christ places Christ into the believer. If there is faith in you, even mixed with resentment, Christ is in you. Let me tell you one other quick story that I think illustrates this. I was reading a book called Wild Trees. And it's about these people that explore these giant redwood forests and canopies 300 feet in the air. And there's all these canopies. You probably heard about this or read about this. saw some documentary way ahead of me on this. But I finally read the book. And they're talking about one night meeting at a buddy's for a potluck. This is, I guess, how these tree climbers do it. And part of their potluck was climbing 100 feet into the tree, hanging out. And then they were going to eat. And as they were coming down, it was a little dark. And the best climber among them let everybody else go first. And he knew this tree very well. He was 100 feet in the air. And he missed a limb. He grabbed a limb that really wasn't a limb. And he began this free fall, I think about 90 miles per hour. Four days later, he left the hospital with a couple cracked ribs. And you're wondering how. Let's close in prayer. The way he landed was one thing. But where he landed is what saved him. Under this tree at the very bottom was this loamy stuff. I forget what it's called, but it's really, really, really soft. And when they got back from the hospital, they went back to the, that tree, and there was this perfect indention of that man's body. It's like this thing had just sucked him in. And it caught him. And it saved him. He's still climbing trees to this day. Now, it isn't your faith or how much you believe. It's not how much resentment's there that saves you. It's whom you believe into. It is the canopy. That is Jesus. Let's pray. God, you tell one big powerful story all through the Bible. That you came into this world and even Martha declared that I know you're the one that, that, that was to come. Lord, thank you for bringing us into that story. Lord, we pray today that those who struggle to believe this, that are dealing with resentments and disappointments, would find Jesus a warm receiver of them. And those, God, who have never believed into Jesus might find a safe landing. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.